as people started to find out that I was interested in the topic and writing about it, people started reaching out to me saying, hey, I have this book you might be interested in, or there's this recording that I have that I've never shared with anybody. And we started getting packages in the mail and, and people would, when I'd meet people, they'd, they'd share rare books or rare documents or give me suggestions for reading or who to talk to. And really it just became this collection of data. It became this collection of information that I had. And, and I started compiling it sort of as a, a document to understand it in chronological order, what, what was going on, what happened um, for my own clarity. And then people started asking to read it. And that's sort of how it became a book. I don't think I started out with the intention of it being a book. Hi, I'm Sukrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 52nd episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Ganesha Kaur, who is an anesthesiologist specializing in human rights. Her research interests focus on displaced populations such as migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. She is also the author of the book 1984, Lost in History, which will be discussed today. The book documents the events of 1984, before, during and after with respect to the human rights violations in India, the subsequent trauma and the campaign for justice which continues today. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for sick children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi Learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Ganesha Kaur? So I am an anesthesiologist and a human rights researcher. My background is both in medicine, science, and medical anthropology. And it's a unique combination of training and experience um, that really helps to frame how I help my patients who are refugees, asylum seekers, and undocumented individuals, both from a health perspective in terms of rehabilitation and recovery from trauma, but also in terms of understanding the human story. And so in my clinical practice, I, as an anesthesiologist, care for people in the operating room during surgery, but also through my practice as a human rights researcher, 
engage with people who are coming to the U.S. seeking asylum. And it's really that combination of clinical care in a clinical setting and understanding the body under trauma and psychological trauma and physical trauma that I layer on top of caring for survivors of human rights violations in our, our clinic. And so how did that come to be? You know, it's a combination that is quite unique. I didn't, there's no established career pathway or track in anesthesiology and human rights. Um, so that really came as a way for me to connect to my own past. My family came to the United States when I was just a year old um, to escape violence in India. And for many, many years, I didn't know of my family's history. And I think the process of finding out that history in my teenage years and recognizing that there were so many people that were left behind in that violence really pushed me towards creating a pathway, a career where I could then contribute back to those who weren't as fortunate as I was, who didn't have the opportunity that I did or that my family did to escape that violence. And so sort of an, a, a description of where I am now and, and where that's coming from and, and why that why that pathway came to be. And can you please share with us more about how your work relates to trauma, the experience of memory, and how this all links to the story of 1984? Well, it's very interesting. You know, there's obviously there's individual trauma that people are experiencing or had experienced. The, the story of my own family, of my father who was beaten and left for dead in one of the trains that passed through Billy is a perfect example of individual trauma. But that also projects outwards onto family trauma and from family trauma into community trauma. And from community trauma, we start to get a sense of what those memories look like, right? In our community, memories around 84 are really shaped almost at the community level. There is this very deep to the bone understanding within our community of what that trauma felt like, what the image was, what the, what the smells, the sounds, the feelings of that time embedded within our community. And then it spreads down to the individual. So when you hear people talk about 84, it's often the story of the community that we were experiencing this trauma as a community. We were experiencing this persecution as a community. We were experiencing these disappearances, these um, imprisonments, this torture as a community. And then people start to talk about what it looked like in their individual lives. And I think the memory of individuals is very linked in our community and in 84 to the memory of the community and, and that that almost institutional memory that the community has. Now, in my practice as a human rights researcher, 
this is something that is very palpable almost in refugees and asylum seekers who are coming to the U.S. There is individual trauma that is rooted and and sort of um, hooked to the trauma of a community, of, of a group of people. So let's say I have an individual who's coming to the U.S. from a country in Africa or a country in Central America or South America, they, they don't just talk about themselves, they talk about how their communities were targeted for their ethnicities or their religious beliefs or because of drug trade or trafficking, these kinds of things, and then how it impacted them in terms of individual trauma. So, um, you know, it's been a very interesting career pathway and, and very interesting experiences within my work and within research um, that we do, understanding not just trauma, but really how people are processing that trauma within their memories, but also their bodies. So what I see a lot is the physical manifestation of psychological trauma. Someone will come in and when they're describing their experiences of persecution to me in a forensic medical evaluation that I'm doing for immigration court, I can see their breathing patterns shifting. I can see their heart rates going up. I can see physical signs of that psychological trauma and, and how it's expressed in each individual is different, but that's something that we notice across our community and, and how memory shifts and, and changes based on that sort of physical feedback um, and, and those physical reactions. So um, I think it's what one thing we know there's, you know, there's a lot of research to be done in the field of trauma um, and, and trauma studies, and, and particularly with refugees, migrants, people who have been persecuted. But I think one thing we know for certain is that trauma is multi-layered. So there's physical aspects, there's psychological aspects, but they also modulate each other. And so um you know, the, like I described, there's there's um, how the community is reacting overlaid on individual feelings and experiences. So seeing all of that together has been really fascinating. And part of what we're trying to do in our research lab is separate out some of that so that we can think about how to recover and rehabilitate individuals. And as a follow-up, to that. Can I ask you about what this means and looks like in terms of medicating this trauma and what the consequences are like of it being unmedicated or neglected? It's a really great question because what you're talking about is critical, especially when we look at what happened in 84 in the context of a place where mental health is really not recognized and not prioritized. So, you know, you have this community that has suffered this incredible trauma from those multiple levels that we talked about, right? Individual levels, families, and community, and as a nation, right? And when you're in a setting where the impact of that trauma 
on psychological health is unrecognized. Um, that is a setup for a lot of distress and um, physical and psychological distress. And what I mean by that is there have been a couple of studies actually within the area in, in Punjab looking at people who survived the trauma of 84. There was a study by Ensaf and uh, the Bellevue Center for, actually it was the, the Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture. And in that study, they basically looked at the effects of this trauma that individuals experienced, torture, abductions, um, being detained uh, and having family members be disappeared. They looked at the effect of that trauma on psychological well-being. And what they found was that by standards set by psychiatrists in the United States, over 50% of people had post-traumatic stress disorder. And I believe over 50% of people had major depression, past or present, for both of those conditions. But when that goes unrecognized and untreated, that is a huge problem. Those are just like cardiovascular disease or pulmonary disease. These are medical conditions that are debilitating. They can be extremely problematic for individuals that are trying to have a normal life, are trying to recover from trauma. And when the, when it's not recognized, um, you know, that that is a huge problem. And so um, the lack of diagnosis, the lack of attention to mental health in the wake of trauma um, is really a problem, especially in places like India. So our group had done a study looking um, within the widow colony. We had gone in and interviewed um, several women from the widow colony looking for whether they had mental health distress, whether they were experiencing depression or post-traumatic stress. And what we found was that the rates of those conditions was quite high, but was completely unrecognized, even almost to the individual, that they knew, for example, they were having flashbacks, or they knew that they had particular feelings, difficulty sleeping, difficulty eating, real physical symptoms of these psychological conditions, but they didn't have the words necessarily to describe that they were mental health illnesses because that's just not acceptable. So going back to that study from Physicians for Human Rights, I think, and, and the Bellevue Program for Survivors of Torture and Insaf, um, when they were interviewing people, they found that family members basically were categorizing people who had PTSD or, or, or depression or, or some psychological manifestation of their trauma. They were just being categorized as crazy. And some of those people, for example, were being chained to beds and not being allowed out of their homes because the community, the family didn't know how to deal with them. So the study that we did from the widow colony, we mapped onto um, countries where there was 
severe war conflict or violence, we map that onto numbers of psychiatrists or psychologists, mental health professionals available. And basically what we found was that the areas where there is a lot of conflict and trauma, the rates of professionals to support rehabilitation and recovery was incredibly low. And so there is this mismatch. There is a lack of understanding from individuals, families, and communities on what this trauma is that results in a lack of diagnosis. And even when it is diagnosed, there aren't providers to actually help with recovery. And so when you look at it that way, you know, a lot of people will say things like 1984 was 30 years ago, it was almost 40 years ago, right? Why are we still talking about it? Part of the answer to that question is that that trauma is still very much alive. Look at major sources of trauma in the United States, September 11th, right? That is a real palpable individual community national trauma. Just because it's been a set of 20 years doesn't mean that that trauma doesn't exist anymore, that people who remember watching the Twin Towers fall don't still remember where they were when that happened, right? That's a a very real experience to thousands of people. So just because time has passed doesn't mean that that trauma doesn't exist. And, And that's just one of the reasons why I think 84 is still relevant. There was one study from 1997 by Dr. Amy Laws, which looked at the Punjab police and their torture practices across the 1990s. And one conclusion from that study was that the torture inflicted was designed to leave no scars. So a lot of it was psychological. Therefore, it was hard to legitimize and prove in court. Yeah, so what's, you know, okay, so what I'll say is that the the people that we see in our research center, the, the Human Rights Impact Lab at Cornell, we really see people from all over the world. And we're seeing refugees and asylum seekers from tens of countries. You know, we're, we, I think it's something like 70 countries. And what we see is that there's the kind of trauma... So maybe the best way to say this is um, we see people in the Center for Human Rights and we see people in our Human Rights Impact Lab from all over the world. And the type of torture that people in Punjab were subjected to is a very unique kind of torture. That's not to say that it doesn't happen anywhere else in the world. But you are correct that the way that the torture was done often was to inflict the greatest amount of physical damage without leaving physical scars. And as someone who is a forensic medical evaluator of torture and trauma, what I document in asylum cases is essentially physical signs of torture. So for example, if somebody has been beaten or whipped, I can diagnose based on the scars on their body. I can see 
whether that is highly consistent, consistent with that type of trauma, that type of torture. What happened in Punjab was that much of the torture was done in a way that it did not leave such physical scars. So for example, rolling of um, big wooden logs essentially on somebody's legs causes muscle crush injuries, which you can't necessarily see. You can't necessarily see decades later. Um, suspending an individual from their upper extremities will cause brachial nerve plexus injuries that leave somebody's arms um, in extreme pain or, or very difficult for them to use because of the nerve injury. But from the outside, it doesn't look like there's anything wrong. And so I think part of it, yes, was to inflict the greatest amount of physical trauma without leaving signs. I also agree with you that it was psychological in nature, right? The, the idea wasn't just to eliminate people who were being identified by the police or by the government as problematic. The goal really was to crush the spirit of a movement and how do you do that? You, you crush an individual's soul. And so it wasn't just torture of an individual, but it was making people watch the torture of their family members, of their wives, of their children. And that I think is a testament to how the goal was really to break the spirit. The goal wasn't just to break a body, but it was to create and inflict such psychological trauma that you would be left with post-traumatic stress. You would be left with depression. Even if you managed to not be disappeared, even if you managed to not be shot by the police, you would leave completely shattered emotionally and psychologically. That didn't happen to everybody. That didn't, those experiences didn't happen to everybody. And, and the, the most sort of horrific results of those experiences didn't happen to everybody who, who was tortured in that way. But it's very clear, you know, when we see torture from other parts of the world, um, it's what, what happened in Punjab is very unique. Um, again, not to say that that doesn't happen everywhere. I think there is a trend, and it's it's hard to say a trend, that's probably not the accurate language, but I think there is something we're noticing that's happening in terms of torture across the world. I had written an article about this in The Lancet last year, talking about how torture has become more violent to the point where I felt as though there wasn't really even terminology in medicine that we were using to correctly describe what this looked like. When we were seeing people from Central America, for example, and they were they had suffered gang violence, the point of that violence wasn't as it typically is in torture to extract a confession or to um, 
you know, have somebody reveal the location of somebody else or, or whatever, those sorts of things. It was just to be as grotesque as possible. And so you were seeing, you know, this kind of violence that was just um, really grotesque to, to its root, to its core for no purpose, almost like, like purposeless extreme violence. And the word that I gave to that was ultraviolence, that it's beyond what one might see in, in historical torture. Again, not that that has never happened before, but the patterns of that are increasing across the world. And we did see that in Punjab. I think there were some reports and now I'm having a hard time finding them, but I remember reading things like, you know, babies being tortured in front of their parents. Um, but again, there's, there's just a, a real lack of documentation, I think, of that time. And this urgent need to document this very much recent history, this living history, in fact, is that what inspired you to write your book, Lost in History, 1984? You know, it started when, as a teenager, I, I found out my own family history and the way that it started was finding out that my own dad had been targeted in the violence. And once I realized that, I think there's an aspect of every human being that's curious about their own history, right? People who listen to the stories of their grandparents or do DNA tests on 23andMe or whatever it is, right? We're all curious about where we come from and, and how we came to be. And what was fascinating to me about that history was that we had specifically left India to escape that kind of violence. And it was really shocking to me that I didn't know for, for 14 or 15 years that part of my family history. And so out of curiosity, I started reading and looking up anything that I could online and um, talking to people and trying to find out what had happened. And, you know, I'd, I'd find one article here or there, I'd find a book here or there, and, and I'd, I'd print it all out and, and everything was dripping in yellow highlighting and, and all these notes in the margins. And I started really putting it together to, to try to understand the narrative. What happened? Why did it happen? What was the, the trigger? What was the root cause? Um, so it really started out as an exploration of my own family history. And then it started to take a life of its own. I think as people started to find out that I was interested in the topic and writing about it, people started reaching out to me saying, hey, I have this book you might be interested in, or there's this recording that I have that I've never shared with anybody. And we started getting packages in the mail and, and people would when I'd meet people, they'd, they'd share rare books or rare documents or give me suggestions for reading or who to talk to. And really, it just became this collection of data. It became this collection of information that I had. And, and I started compiling it sort of as a, a document to understand it in chronological order, what, what was going on, what happened um, for my own clarity. And then people started asking to read it. And that's sort of how it became a book. I don't think I started out with the intention of it being a book. Um, 
it was first written when I was a high schooler. So I really had no experience in writing. I had no real on the ground knowledge of what had happened. Really, it was just talking to survivors of the time that were then in the US. But the thing that I did have was experience in research. So I had done several years of neuroscience, basic neuroscience research and genetics research. So I knew how to look for factual information, how to use citations responsibly, that if you say something that is not widely accepted or known, that you really have to have a reference for it. And so that's how the format of the book really came to be, how almost every sentence is referenced. You know, it's it's um, it's the work of that research inspiration um, coming to bear on a more human story. One thing I must say about your book is that it is a book I have bought many times simply to pass on as a reference bank that illustrates a succinct timeline of the events that unfolded in 1984. And so I wanted to ask you, when you wrote it in this chronological way, was there any conflict with that approach? i.e. some histories are running parallel here and there, or, for example, some topics needed to have more context to explain X, Y, or Z before moving on? Well, first, thank you for, you know, just saying how you use the book. I think it the idea was always that it should be a reference guide almost, that it, it's a starting point for people that you can say, hey, I think this aspect of how the country came to be is really interesting. I want to read a little bit more about that. And you can flip to the back and get a bunch of resources to read a, a bunch of other um, really reliable resources. And, and it, I think in creating the structure that we did, it was really to take somebody along a journey. The idea is that you find yourself at the birth of this nation and you walk through those experiences as though you were tracking almost as if the nation were the thread throughout. Right. Um, and so that, that is, that's really how it's structured. And of course there are these parallel stories happening. Part of what I, part of what I really didn't want to do was have the focus be a particular event or a particular individual or a particular protagonist or a particular antagonist. That's not what this is about. This is a story of a people. It's of their history. It's of where they came from, what they experienced and where they go from here. And I really wanted to be able to give the reader that holistic perspective. And so in some ways, the easiest way to do that was to be chronological, to be concrete in the timeline and the facts. Um, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of ways that it, a story like this could be written. It's really hard to, I find it, you know, it's, it's really, it's really hard for somebody to make it about something it's not when it's framed this way. <laughs> um, and, and I think there's really beautiful books that that do the other kind of work, right? There's books about Nehru, there's books about Gandhi, there's books about 
partition. There's books about whoever that you can explore that are sort of referenced at the back if you're interested in that particular thing. But I didn't want to make it about any of those individual people or events or um, happenings. Going back to this idea of referencing you spoke about, another method you employed was oral history interviews, which you conducted on the ground, as well as including authoritative comments from judges. Can you explain more about your methods and which sources carried authority for you? And conversely, which sources of information you had to discount due to a lack of credibility? Such a great question. You know, I had stacks, literally stacks of printed papers, books, news articles, journal clippings, um, literally stacks um, throughout my house as I was creating this. And this tiny little book is just a fraction of the data that's out there. So what I'll say is, you know, my, my, the way that I approach this is that you need that authenticity. You need a variety of sources. You need legitimate sources. You need, it, it can't just be hearsay. It has to be people who were there, first person witness accounts, um, judges who were who were looking at these cases, lawyers who were um, prosecuting. I mean, it has to be first person accounts. It has to be really carefully documented. And I think what I do in my practice right now in my as a as a human rights researcher completely models this right the idea is that you need hard facts you need hard data so I'll give you an example that relates to my current research the the work that I'm doing right now is looking at chronic pain in survivors of torture and basically the the medical idea up until now has then has been that pain after torture is largely psychosomatic, that it's a manifestation of post-traumatic stress disorder or major depression or a psychosomatization that people feel physically. While that is true, people also experience real physical pain. There is, like I described, when you hang somebody from their upper extremities, when you tie their hands behind their back and then you suspend them, they're going to have nerve injuries. And up until now, that has been a near completely neglected field of study because while it seems really obvious, there's no data to show it. And in medicine, nothing is, is real until it's proven beyond a shadow of doubt. And what my research looks like right now is basically evaluating people who have survived torture and demonstrating that they do have physical pain. Why do I need to demonstrate that? Because countries and healthcare systems will not put resources towards rehabilitating those individuals unless I can put a number on it. If I can't say, you know, 75% of people who have been tortured have physical pain, then nobody is going to put money towards dealing with that physical pain. And so documentation 
is really important. Factual information is really important. And that was really the spirit behind the documentation that was done in Lost in History. It was to say that these facts are, are diffused amongst all of this information in all of these stacks of paper that I have, the facts are sort of lost. They're bits and pieces that are scattered around. And so when I was, there's so much information that I didn't put in the book because I didn't feel as though I could cite it well enough. It was sometimes really compelling or moving or, um, riveting accounts or information that that I really wanted to include, but I felt I couldn't because I didn't have the right reference. I didn't have the right source. And more than anything, what I wanted to be able to do was sort of plant a flag of this is real. This is not just people talking about their experiences or saying that something happened, but here's, here's hard facts. Here are, here's something that somebody from the other side said, here's what was documented in a pamphlet that was produced, you know, two days after an event. This is not something that I'm digging up 30 years later and claiming happened. And so that was really, really important to me. If I felt that something couldn't be cited, I would rather not say it than put it in there. Um, that's a really, you know, hard, hard thing to do. I think when you're very emotionally attached to a lot of the material. Um, but the goal was to create something that was really easy to read, really factual, and was a reference guide. So if somebody was interested in learning more about a particular event or person, they could they could expand outwards. And can I now ask you about the title of your book and also about the structure, in particular, the chronology of events, but also about the chapters and why the events prior to 1984 were so important? Sure. So the the title of Lost in History really came from the spirit of the data being invisible, that the the stories were lost, the information was lost, the data were lost. And where was it lost? It was lost somewhere between what the community was saying had happened to them and the government denying that any of it had ever happened. Not just the sort of dissonance there, but also the documents that had been burned, the people that had died in the interim, the people that had died during those events, things had just sort of disappeared. And what I was trying to do with this title was to say that this was a time period, a series of events that was lost in history and that this book was an attempt to reconstruct it, reconstruct it from thousands of documents, millions of words on pages, stories, oral history, commentary, recordings, trying to reconstruct what had happened rooted in factual information. So that's sort of where the title of the book came from. In terms of the structure, the the lead up to the events, I think it's really critical to understand 
what was the setup for this history to happen? When I take a history of a patient and they say, I have high blood pressure, or I see that they have extremely high blood glucose levels, that's just the time point at which I'm interacting with them. But how did they get there? I have to look at their family history. I have to look at their personal history. I have to investigate what their housing looks like, what their job looks like, how many times do they see a doctor a year. And those types of things play into the concept of structural violence. It's not just what happened to an individual at a particular time point, but what were the systems, the infrastructure of the government, the policies, the rules, the cultural tension, uh, religious tension, what was it that led up to that moment? And so I think to talk about 84 without talking about that history, to talk about you know the, the blood pressure or the glucose without talking about that history completely misses the point. And, and you're never going to understand why it is what it is. And more importantly, what to do about it, where to go from there if you don't understand that history. You know, part of what we do at the Human Rights Impact Lab is to sort of document and diagnose what's happening to an individual. But the point of doing that is really to understand what that person needs in order to recover and be rehabilitated. And without understanding their full history, you can't get to that answer. So what's the point of this book? The point is to document what's happened to a community, to really put that out there as a part of evidence and literature and history, to, to recreate that history, but also to help figure out why this happened in this part of the world so that it doesn't happen again, whether it doesn't happen again in this part of the world or in another part of the world. I think there, there is something really important in understanding when there, when there are events like this that happen, whether it's a natural disaster or a, a trauma against a community or individual experiences or individual health, whatever it is, you have to look at that background. Otherwise, you don't know where to go from there. There's, there's no learning that can happen without happening that without having that background. And so the way the chapters are structured in terms of going into that history is really to help the reader understand what context led up to these moments and really to gain a sense of those emotions, right? If you and I are having a conversation and we start straight away with the meat of what's important, the thing that we want to talk about, um, we don't have the understanding of each other, the way that the other person talks, we don't have any emotional connection. And so those initial chapters do some of that work. They, I, What I wanted was for people, for the reader to understand why would somebody tolerate being picked up by the police and tortured and then sent back home and picked up again by the police and tortured and sent back home. Why would somebody tolerate that five or 10 or 15 or 20 times? Because they have this historical trauma 
in them. They have this generational trauma in them that that makes them a little bit more resilient, that that pushes them to say, I'm going to stand up for my rights this time. I'm not going to just allow this to happen to our community again. And so I think understanding that history is really a critical part of understanding how why 84 played out the way that it did. That really explains the first half of the book. And so then what can we start to see with Bindrawale and the tensions that are building closer to the time of Operation Blue Star? How did you approach these chapters of the book and the history in terms of research and storytelling? So, you know, I was really trying to not be, to not have my own family experiences or emotions drive those chapters. I don't know that I succeeded. I don't think I succeeded overall in the book. And remember, I wrote this when I was in high school. So imagine, you know, a teenager who's just realizing their family history starting to document some of this. So I'm not going to say that it's an unbiased account, but what I was trying to do was counter the narratives from all sides about what was actually happening, what was actually taking place in this time in history with facts. So the chapter on Blue Star, for example, is heavy in numbers and and quotes and the whole book is, but particularly in that part where, where I'm talking about that six month span of time, really trying to counteract both the government narrative that this didn't happen and the community narrative of not knowing what the scale was. Um, you know, there was a media blackout. And so people were left to something that they had heard from something, somebody from somebody else. And so it was a lot of parsing through information to get to hard facts and and numbers and quotes that I could pull out and highlight. And again, just as a starting point for the conversation, but to say, we know that this many tanks came in. We know that these number of army personnel were involved, right? And so um, to really kind of force people to look at the number, um, to, to look at those facts and numbers, I think was was the driving force for those chapters. Again, I, I don't think I was unbiased or unemotional, um, but really trying to, throughout the book, and I think throughout the work that I do now, integrate the data with the human story. What about the story after the events of 1984? For example, the campaign for justice, especially considering erasure attempts and how India responds to human rights. What was it like researching and writing that part of your book? In some ways, those chapters were actually a little bit easier to write because it was reporting on reports, right? It was sort of reporting on something that was well-documented. The harder chapters, I think, were talking about people being tortured or these really 
emotional stories that people were telling of being picked up and and their family members disappeared or of um, documenting all of the information, sifting through all of the data from 84 and, and really figuring out how to put hard numbers there. The last part about lawlessness, I think, in some ways was really the call to action, right? It's to say, look, here's where where we've where we are. Here's here's where we are in terms of reckoning with what has happened. And and we just by presenting this information, it is just um blatantly clear that justice has not been done, right? And that there needs to be more and that it, it's it's okay it's it's um in some ways the denial of justice is just as bad as the persecution itself. To say that this didn't happen to a community or an individual can be as painful to survivors as losing loved ones. I mean, it's denying somebody's trauma is very impactful and powerful. And so those chapters were really, the the goal of that section was really to say that we had some work to do, um, that here's how far we had gotten and and we needed, there, there needs to be, more done. And I think, you know, when we look to countries like Rwanda or South Africa, I mean, no system is perfect, but you see some level of accountability. And I think in the U.S., what's happening right now in terms of racial justice um, protests is saying that we're not perfect as a nation, but we're more imperfect when we don't acknowledge the trauma and pain that we've caused. And so those points about the various commissions that fell short were really to say, it's time. It's time for there to be a better understanding and reckoning of what this community has endured. And part of that is bringing out the history, right? If, if, if what, is causing some of that to happen is the fact that this is lost in history. It's reconstructing that history that will lead us to justice. Can you please also explain some of the science of intergenerational trauma and what this means for our community? So intergenerational trauma, I mean, I think with all things in science, there's more work to be done, but there's good evidence. There's strong scientific evidence that there is intergenerational trauma and that what happens to one family member can be carried throughout generations. Whether that happens through, for example, DNA methylation, where the DNA itself is not changed, but environmental factors influence how the DNA is expressed. Um, to the extent to which that happens, I think, is still being investigated. There's 
a lot of research being done on epigenetics. Um, you know, our lab group does some of that research. We're just starting to do some of that research, looking at, for example, when, um, let's say, for example, an, an individual comes to the U.S. seeking asylum and they're separated from their family members, let's say a parent is separated from a child, what kind of epigenetic um, fallout is there from that separation? You know, so understanding how trauma is transmitted through generations. So the short answer is essentially, we know that that happens to some extent, but there's more research to be done to figure out to what extent does it happen, but also can it be mitigated? Can it be reversed? I mean, I think that's where our lab is going is to understand how trauma can be mitigated or reversed. You know, I can't change the fact that somebody's coming as a refugee to the United States, but I can potentially change their life trajectory afterwards. And so what, um, what changes do we need to make to our policies or our healthcare or whatever so that um, rehabilitation and recovery happens most effectively? So that's the, the sort of intergenerational trauma aspect of it. And do you, as a researcher, also go through sessions of debriefing to address any secondary trauma that may be inflicted upon you? as a result of your research? So I think, you know, there's a lot about vicarious trauma, about how an individual might carry the weight of their work or their life experiences. Many people think of that as individual trauma, right? Um, a firefighter who's rescuing a child from a burning building and can't save them, or um, we, we're seeing that a lot with COVID, um, trauma from having to care for really sick patients in the hospital. So vicarious trauma is a very real thing. I think it has very real physical and psychological effects. In my work, we train um, students and faculty who are learning to become trauma evaluators or forensic medical evaluators or who are going to work in our lab on how to deal with those kinds of things, how to deal with that weight. It's not perfect. Um, I think, you know, bearing the weight of another human being, another human being's trauma is a lot, but I think there's also some resiliency that's born through that, right? You see these profound, these profoundly horrible life experiences that other people have. And I think in some ways that fosters gratitude and contentment with what you yourself have. You know, what I've seen in my refugee patients and the individuals who are seeking asylum is a lot more resiliency than one would expect. Um, you know, sometimes people have seen and experienced the worst trauma. They've had their children killed in front of them. They've um, gone to multiple countries to seek asylum. They've lost their jobs. They used to be highly functional and independent people in their home countries, and now they're homeless in a shelter. But more often than not, what I see is that 
people are stable and thankful and kind and full of grace and the the source of that i think is different for different people but when you see somebody who has experienced so much trauma in their life and they are stable and thankful and kind it really sort of puts your own life challenges into perspective that's not to say that it's not difficult being a doctor or having mounds of research paperwork or you know, sleep training a toddler or whatever it is, all those things can still be challenging, but you see people's life experiences. And I think it sort of neutralizes your own life experiences. And so for me, and and, and I'm only speaking about that as an individual, you know, for me, I think um, there's a lot of strength that I get from those patients and, and from doing this kind of work. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Ganesha Kaur, for coming on the podcast to discuss your book, but also about your professional life and campaign committed to those that have survived such traumatic events. It's amazing and inspiring to know how the medical field can contribute to the campaign for justice, and also how a young teenage girl interested in her family history led up to your publications and career. So thank you so much again for coming on and being a guest on our show. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. Thank you.